This is Sound and Vision on KEXP. I'm Emily Fox. The Melvins are celebrating their 40th anniversary as a band with a performance at the Showbox on Friday, September 1st. The Melvins have been hugely influential on Seattle's musical sound and were influential to bands including Nirvana, Soundgarden, and Mudhoney. I'm now joined by the band's guitarist and vocalist, Buzz Osborne, to talk about the band's career. Hello. Hello. So the Melvins started in Montesano, Washington, and Aberdeen near the, near the Washington coast. Take us back to those early days. Like, I know, you know, Nirvana's Kurt Cobain is also from Aberdeen. You guys are about three years apart in age. So I'm guessing you were exposed to similar music scenes. But how would you describe the music scene in that area growing up? Oh, the music scene in the Grace Harbor area was stupid. <laughs> A bunch of uh, arrogant kids and adults who played cover songs mostly and i realized pretty quickly there was no place for me in that i guess nirvana wasn't really playing at that point but were you like interacting at all with like kurt cobain and like that crowd at that time well there wasn't really a crowd i took kurt to his first punk rock show and that was until 1984 Mm. so as far as like him being involved in some kind of music crowd there there was nothing and then for you, like, where, where did you start performing where the Melvins really started to, to gain momentum? Our first show was in a real show was in Olympia, Washington. And that's kind of where we got embraced first. That was in 83. And then we started playing in Seattle and, and various places around that area. But it wasn't until, uh, until we moved to California that things really took off for us. And are you still based in California? Yep. I've lived in California and San Francisco for seven years and then the Los Angeles area for more than 30 years, more than half my life in California. Yep. So I just got done reading Steve Turner of Mudhoney's memoir about the grunge explosion in Seattle. And, you know, Mudhoney was one of those early grunge bands. But Steve mentioned the Melvins a lot in the book. Like I so many times in the book. And, you know, I understand your band was also a big influence on Nirvana and Soundgarden. What do you think it was about the Melvin sound that other bands were latching on to? There was something missing in music, which was a heaviness and a, mel- and a melodic heaviness that also had, had a root in firmly in punk rock to some degree, uh, which I think that was something that was missing in popular music or music in general, as far as that was concerned. I always thought that that was the case. And those bands picked up on that from us pretty quickly. And in the end, that changed music on a global level. Mm -hmm. And for you, I'm assuming, maybe I could be wrong, but you've been able to make a living off of music for a while now? I haven't had a job or anybody underwriting what I'm doing since 1988. I mean, that in itself says something, that you're able to sustain yourself just through music. Yeah, well before the grunge explosion, I was already not working. And so that really took off for us when we moved to San Francisco. I had a hard time with with stuff in the Northwest as far as like records and things of that nature. Um, But once we moved to to San Francisco, things took off for us very quickly. We quickly got a record deal. We quickly got shows in in a much easier fashion than we ever had in the Northwest. And uh, we had a record out pretty quickly down there, the Osmo record. And... 
when we got our first royalty check from that, this was all well before grunge or any of that stuff had been a big deal, you know? And, um, uh, we had made enough on that to quit our jobs that we had and concentrate solely on music. It wasn't a lot of money, but it, we figured let's give this a shot and see how long we can make this work without having uh, regular jobs. And so far we haven't had j- regular jobs. So. <laughs> you were with a major label for a little bit there, weren't you? We were on Atlantic Records for three albums, but that wasn't until 1993. So I had already been making a living since 1988 prior to that. Oh, that's awesome. So, you know, I mean, uh, the grunge explosion hadn't have happened. We still would have been okay as far as that's concerned. But when the grunge thing happened and Nirvana and Soundgarden and people like that were were talking about us, then major labels thought, well, maybe we should sign them and see what happens. I never really thought it would work. I thought we would get one album out of it and then we'd walk away. But they kind of used us as like a legitimacy badge to sign other bands, which was fine with me. I mean, I like the idea of being on Atlantic. I thought that's where we belonged with, up there with the Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin, and uh, Aretha Franklin. Sounded good to me. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good lineup. Right. And so uh, I had no interest in, at that point. In, if we were going to sign a big contract, I wasn't about to sign one with uh, some hip indie label. I saw no interest. I had no interest in that. Let's go with the biggest. But I thought it would be one album and we'd be out of there. And they ended up doing three albums. And so when we moved, when, when they dropped us from that, like I knew they would, um, we had a record that was ready to go and we continued touring and we've never stopped since. I mean, I've probably done close to 30 albums and I don't know how many since we were on Atlantic. Atlantic was just one little inroad that we did. I was happy to do it. We didn't sign massively lucrative contracts with them, but it was enough to make it to where we would each have a little bit of money for a little while. And that was nice. But uh, I've always figured that, you know, what you do with a band like us is you strive to make a middle class living and you move on like it's not going to work. And that, that's been the best, best advice I can give people. Pretend you're going to be out of business in six months. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, looking back at, at your 40 year career, you know, with, with the Melvins, what would you say were some key moments in the band's career? I don't know. It's been a slow war of attrition for us. There hasn't been any massive explosion. I think moving to San Francisco was the best move we could have made as far as our popularity. And certainly moving to San Francisco was the best move we could have made as far as our popularity in the Northwest was concerned. When we lived up there, we could get hardly anybody to show. As soon as we left, then all of a sudden it was like, oh, everybody wants to see us. We're like, well, where were you people when you were playing every weekend? <laughs> yeah. So pretty funny. Um, I never quite understood that, but that's fine. I mean, Seattle's, I, we try to play there every year at least. And we always have a great time in the Northwest. It's great. But I'm, you know, California and the Southwest to the bone now. And, and, and um, this is where I live. This is, I, this is where I got married. You know, I've been married for 30 years and um, to the same woman. <laughs> Congratulations. Oh, and we laughed and it's 27 and a half years longer than most rock and roll marriages last. Yeah. <laughs> what the hell is wrong with us? You know, so, you know, key moments in my band's career... I don't know, key moments in my life or, or, you know, getting married and having that last for 30 years, that's probably the most, most important achievement in my adult life by far. And um, that's the one I can rely on the most. And the one that, that, you know, that that kind of partnership is something that I don't take lightly and um, value very highly. So that, that's the most important thing. 
I love that answer. I love that answer. <laughs> um, so I'm curious. I mean, the Melvins have put out so many records over the years. And I'm curious, if you were to choose three songs throughout your entire career that kind of exemplify what the Melvins are about or how your sound has evolved over the years, what three songs would you point to? I would say um, number one would be Night Goat. It's a song I wrote probably 30 years ago. Night Goat has this simplistic power um, that uh, I think um, shows what I thought was missing in the music industry in the first place. And um, it's a, just a great riff. It's a kind of guitar riff that you wait your whole life to write. We had a bass player, Mark, in the band. When he, when he, when he uh, started playing that song with us, he's like, that's the kind of riff I've always wanted to play. And um, that one works really well. I think it's that kind of says it. It's a great riff. I remember the moment I wrote it was in San Francisco, I was sitting on my bed, edge of my bed, and I came up with that guitar riff, and I was just like, "Oh, that's good. That's good." I knew immediately that that was really good. So I think that's probably the the main one. If I had to pick one, that would be the one. You know, bombastic and big, and 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 it's got a good hook to it, and uh, it's very memorable. Do you have any others that also stand out to you at all? I really like this song off of uh, a bullhead called Anaconda. I really like. It's got an odd chord. I came up with a weird chord on the guitar that I really like. It's not really a chord. I don't know what it is. Kind of a minor chord that I really like writing a song around. And um, that's got a really good hook to it, too. It's mid-tempo. And um, I like the way the vocal melody fits in with it. I think that one's really cool. And then there's one on a later record called Edgar the Elephant that I think is, I really like the way that's the Edgar the Elephant. It's, it's like the guitar and the bass don't play the same thing at all. It doesn't really match. And uh, it kind of reminds me of a more melodic version. Like, like if the Pixies were gonna play the Gang of Four. If you listen to those three songs, you'd kind of have a pretty good understanding of what we're about. 
But I could go on and on. I mean, you know, it's like people ask me, what's your favorite Melvin's record? I go, well, I could name five. Right. I mean, I'm always kind of of the belief that what I'm doing right now is my favorite stuff. I mean, we did an album a few years ago called A Walk With Love and Death. It was a whole album. And then along with it was what we considered a soundtrack for a movie that didn't exist. Hmm. And so that was a double album that I thought was a really cool, probably the coolest thing we've ever done. Play it cool. Don't be a square. I did that crazy beat. Yeah. And then a year and a half ago, we put out a record called Five-Legged Dog, which was, we did two and a half hours of Melvin's songs and a few covers of us doing all acoustic versions of our songs that came out. It's a four album set, 36 songs. We did that, um, which I thought was a high watermark. I honestly think the Night Goat version on there is the, is the, that's the best version, I think. But that record, I think, is a huge achievement for us. It was really cool. And uh, Walk With Love and Death. Both of those, I think, are two of the proudest things I've ever done. That was Buzz Osborne of the Melvins talking about the band's 40-year career. The Melvins are playing an anniversary show at the Showbox in Seattle on Friday, September 1st. This is Sound and Vision. That was Sound and Vision. Please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast, and consider giving a one-time $20 donation to help support this show at kexp.org slash sound. Thanks for listening.